My name is Joe Hawkins, and this is the History of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in 50 Objects podcast. Welcome back to another episode of History of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in 50 Objects. Now, before we dive into the episode today, I should warn you in advance, this one's going to be quite a bit longer than the previous episodes of this podcast. So if you're listening while you're at the gym, add a couple more sets to your workout. If you're listening while you're driving, slow down at the yellow lights and take your time. Now, in the last episode, we discussed the ship Brooklyn and the Mormons that traveled to California by the ocean. Today, we'll be back with the general body of the church. But first, Let's talk a bit more about what was going on in America in 1846 to provide a bit more context. In episode 35, we discussed how President Polk was invoking the concept of manifest destiny and expounding the boundaries of America from sea to shining sea. Let's focus a bit more on how the U.S. went about taking California. In May of 1846, three months after the first groups from the church left Nauvoo, the U.S. would have its first major encounter with Mexico. Zachariah Taylor would lead an inferior number of Americans into battle against Mexican forces in Texas and win the first conflict of the war. Five days later, on May 13th, the U.S. would officially declare war against Mexico. This conflict was initially staged in Texas, but less than one month later, California would declare independence from Mexico as well. To celebrate, Californians would raise a new California state flag four days after that. This flag would have a bear sewn onto it, and that symbol still sticks to the California state flag today. Moving on here, less than a month after California declared its independence, Mormons would arrive in San Francisco on the ship Brooklyn on July 31st like we discussed. The U.S. Navy that had planted the American flag in San Francisco just weeks earlier was then off to Los Angeles. It would arrive there on August 13th, and there it would also plant the U.S. flag in that city as well. However, the city of Los Angeles wouldn't just roll over like San Francisco did. The naval forces that landed there only numbered about 50 Marines, not nearly enough to hold off the unhappy people in that part of Southern California. A number of skirmishes broke out before the Marines were driven from the city. It would take six months, a significant number of reinforcements, and three or four more battles before the U.S. would finally retake Los Angeles for good. As peace was established, the troops arrived and began to fortify the city. And by July of 1847, Fort Moore was built. It was a military fort in the heart of Los Angeles that was to be the stronghold for the U.S. troops in Southern California. When the fort was dedicated... On July 4th of 1847, the battalion tasked with rebuilding it oversaw the dedicatory meeting. Now, this is a topic of conflict, but some accounts say that the first flag to fly over Fort Moore in Southern California was created by this battalion. Like the new flag of California, it too had a bear on it. But unlike the flag of California, it represented a different group of people. This was a different flag, for it belonged to the only religious military battalion in U.S. history. But how did this religious battalion arrive on the scene in Southern California 
just months after they were being driven out of another state. Today's object is the Mormon Battalion Flag. So what is the Mormon Battalion Flag, and how did it come about? When we last spoke about the Mormons in Nauvoo, it was February 4th of 1846. The first groups left Nauvoo to hop on barges and cross the Mississippi and get out of the city. Remember, this trip wasn't supposed to take place until April, but hostilities and arrest warrants pushed up the timeline. So the initial group left, ferried across the Mississippi, and tracked nine miles to settle in Sugar Creek to wait for Brigham Young and the rest of the general group. Now, Brigham Young was about to leave, but found all those members waiting on him in the nearly finished Nauvoo Temple. And if you'll recall in the Nauvoo Temple episode, he stayed behind for two weeks to perform almost 5,000 temple ordinances. Over the next month, over 3,000 members would leave Nauvoo and make their way to Sugar Creek to begin the trek west. This was a very trying time for the Mormons. The temperatures immediately dropped as over 8 inches of snow was dumped upon them. The small good news was that the Mississippi froze over, so the pioneers could cross on the ice. However, in Sugar Creek, they were living in tents, and these weren't mountain men, these were families. So pregnant women were delivering babies, children were crying to stay warm, and it would take almost a month before Brigham Young and the rest of the general body arrived in Sugar Creek to begin the trek. Now, the initial plan was to make it to Missouri by August and the Rocky Mountains before the end of the year, but there were setbacks from the beginning. To kick it off, like I touched on, the weather was awful. It would rain for weeks at a time, the snows were melting, and it seemed all of eastern Iowa was just a one big mud hole. This would significantly slow up the pioneers, and by the end of their march, the weather and conditions were so difficult that most of the pioneers were only traveling a half a mile a day. To add to this, food quickly became a problem. As the majority of the members left months earlier than planned, they didn't make the necessary preparations as Brigham Young and the leadership had requested. Most didn't have enough food to make it across Iowa, much less to the Rocky Mountains. As food was short, the pioneers became scattered. As the men were looking for small amounts of labor and trading posts, all of this would be enough to drive Brigham Young crazy. The lack of food, poor travel conditions, and scattered men would lead him to write in his journal, quote, This will bring me down to my grave. I am reduced in flesh, so that my coat that would scarcely meet around me last winter now laps over 12 inches. It is with much ado that I can keep from lying down and sleeping to wait the resurrection. End quote. The Mormon pioneers stayed positive, however. Even with all these setbacks, Brigham Young would write about the members, quote, I did not think there had ever been a body of people since the days of Enoch placed under the same unpleasant circumstances that this people have been, where there was no grumbling. And I was satisfied that the Lord was pleased with the majority of the camp of Israel, end quote. That name, Camp of Israel. The Mormon pioneers would adopt that name as they traveled to the Rocky Mountains to symbolize the children of Israel wandering to their promised land. Now, just a quick side note, we discussed this in episode 31, but it was at this time when William Clayton woke up on a snowy morning pondering the news that his wife, who was still back in Nauvoo, had delivered a healthy baby boy. In his joy, he sat down and composed the lyrics to the hymn, All Is Well, which today is called Come, Come Ye Saints. 
This would become the unofficial anthem of the pioneers as they crossed the plains. By the middle of April of 1846, the church was approaching the Iowa-Missouri border. At this point, the church was almost two months behind schedule in their check west. The agonizing delays, the sufferings of the travelers, the weakened condition of the animals, and the lack of food and supplies made Brigham Young and the leadership rethink their plans to make it to the Rocky Mountains that year. So, here the church decided to change their plans. They still wanted to go to the Rocky Mountains, but they needed time to regroup and get on their feet. So, over the next two months, the church would break ground and begin the process of establishing farms and way stations for the following pioneers. Over the last few weeks of April and into May, they would dig up over 715 acres of tough prairie sod. They'd build cabins and establish small communities. They'd build three major camps in Garden Grove, Mount Pisgah, and Council Bluffs, with Council Bluffs being the furthest west and right on the border of Nebraska. In fact, if you look at it on a map, it looks like Omaha. Now, bear with me. We're getting close to our object here. As July rolled around, the church was entrenched in Iowa in those three camps. There was a good amount of debate taking place. Things that were being discussed were when should they leave for the Rocky Mountains, and if they stayed on the plains for the winter, where would they stay? They were currently on federal lands, with Council Bluffs being Indian territory. Also, they needed more food and supplies, but they didn't have money to buy those things in Missouri. So, as all of this was taking place on July 1st of 1846, Captain James Allen of the U.S. military rode into the camp Mount Pisgah. Captain Allen informed the Mormons that as the outbreak of the war with Mexico was taking place, he wanted every man, 18 to 45, to enlist to fight in the Army of the West. I wish I could have been there to see the looks on the faces of the Mormons when he made that statement. For you married men listening, if you've ever left on a business trip while things were not quite settled at home, you can probably understand one millionth of what the women must have been feeling. No need to recap here, but the Mormons had been driven out of three states, and despite multiple attempts at redress, both at the federal and state levels, nothing had ever been done about any of it. But now, here's the military asking for all the able-bodied men to go fight Mexico. Needless to say, Captain Allen was driven off without a single recruit. He would head to Council Bluffs. His plan was to meet with Brigham Young and see if this might help his recruitment. Now, let's pause this story here real quick and talk about why Captain Allen showed up in the first place. Early in 1846, Brigham Young knew the church would need help crossing the plains if they were to make it to the Rocky Mountains. I'm kind of surprised here that he still had faith in the government to do the right thing, but in January of 1846, just a month before they set out from Nauvoo, Brigham Young sent Jesse Little to Washington, D.C. to petition for assistance. Jesse Little would successfully make it all the way to the White House and get a meeting with President Polk. Now, Jesse Little played a sly card here. He knew that war was on the horizon and that the president was about to have a large body of emigrants moving west towards California and Oregon. With Mexico covering half the territory and the British still residing in Oregon, Jesse Little told the president that, although the Mormons were loyal Americans, the government's refusal to assist them could, quote, compel them to be foreigners, end quote. This seemed to do the trick, as Polk didn't want the Mormons to join the British or somehow aid the Mexicans. 
President Polk said he'd aid the Mormons if they'd organize a battalion to assist in the war efforts. So long story short, that's why Captain Allen was headed to Council Bluffs to recruit men. If the Mormons could muster up 500 fighting men, they'd be allowed to remain on Indian lands during the winter of 1846. Brigham Young would agree to the terms immediately. Now, here I think we really see some of Brigham Young's strengths. In my opinion, he'd never be the visionary speaker that Joseph Smith was. He wouldn't reveal groundbreaking revelations like Joseph, but like Moses of the Old Testament, he could move a people to do things they didn't want to do or think was possible. Over the next few weeks, Brigham Young would go between the camps speaking about this opportunity and recruiting men. Brigham would promise the men that they'd look after their wives and children, and he even felt moved to promise the men that if they'd faithfully serve, they wouldn't be thrusted into combat. Quite a promise considering where they were headed. But the men believed, and by July 20th, Brigham Young had pulled off the unthinkable. He'd somehow recruited 500 men to serve in what would be called the Mormon Battalion, the first and only faith-based military battalion in U.S. history. The battalion would consist of over 500 men, with 53 women volunteering to serve as laundresses and 51 children accompanying the women. Now, real quick, one story that I just loved. Among the recruits that joined the Mormon Battalion was the youngest boy, a 16-year-old named William Hendricks. As Brigham Young was walking among the camps, he came upon William and said that he felt inspired that William, though he was 16, should join the battalion. However, William's mother, Drusilla, wouldn't have it and flatly told the Mormon prophet no. Her husband was crippled from the waist down and she wasn't about to let her oldest son leave with the battalion when she needed him in camp. Inspiration or not, it seemed Brigham wised up here and decided he wasn't going to go toe-to-toe with Drusilla. So Brigham Young promptly moved on. Now the story goes that later that day, Drusilla was washing her laundry, and she records that she heard a voice that said, Do you want the greatest glory? And she would record, I've earned the greatest glory. I love that response. These women were pretty tough. Drusilla goes on to say that she hears the voice again say, But do you want the greatest glory? And at this point, her heart seems to soften a bit, and she replies, What lack I, Lord? And according to the account, the voice said to her, Send William with the battalion. The loyalty demonstrated by these early church members here as loyal Americans and faithful followers of a prophet just completely astounds me. So William packs up, kisses his mother goodbye, and he's off. I can't imagine the feelings that these early Mormon men had. To shoulder their packs, look upon their wives and children, most of whom were settled in wind-swept tents on the Iowa prairie, and to turn and march off to war is something unfathomable for us to comprehend. So on July 21st, the Mormon battalion would begin their historic march to war for the United States. And now we finally arrived at our object. So we don't know just when the Mormon battalion flag was created, as there are conflicting accounts. Some say that the flag was created for the battalion march. Other accounts say that the flag was originally used as one of the flags carried by the Nauvoo Legion. Brigham Young would later record in his life that the flag had flown atop the Nauvoo Temple at one point. The flag itself looks like a standard American flag of the day, with 13 red and white stripes and 13 stars. In the middle of the 13 stars was painted a bald eagle. 
So the flag went up and the Mormon battalion of 500 men were walking to Fort Leavenworth, Kansas to be equipped and to be drilled. The battalion would be carrying fewer provisions and marching in mostly drier weather. The marching went much faster than the progress the pioneers of the Camp of Israel had been making. Just one day into the march, however, the battalion suffered its first casualty, as Samuel Bully became ill and died. Needing to make good time, they moved on. In less than two weeks, they covered over 200 miles. As they passed through parts of Missouri, the locals were astounded that the Mormons had volunteered to serve a government that had turned a deaf ear to them. They kept going, and coincidentally, on August 1st, the same day the ship Brooklyn, which we discussed in the last episode, anchored in San Francisco's harbor, the Mormon battalion arrived at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, to be equipped and to be drilled. Now, important point here. At Fort Leavenworth, the men could choose to receive new equipment in terms of shoes, bedding, and clothing, or just receive a cash payout of $42. The men would all take the cash payout and promptly give it all to Orson Pratt. Orson would take that cash back to the pioneers camped in Iowa, and Brigham Young would use this much-needed money to buy fresh provisions for the camps. Things like fruits, vegetables, equipment to fix wagons, clothing, and everything else. Brigham Young was so grateful for the works of this Mormon battalion that he would record that they, quote, proved our loyalty to the United States and were the temporal saviors of the camp of Israel, end quote. The men were given rifles, and as it turns out, not a lot of training was necessary as they'd been drilled quite a bit in Nauvoo while most were part of the Legion. So on August 13th, they began the long trek to Santa Fe where they were most needed. Just a couple of quick notes. Captain James Allen, who the battalion seemed to really like, got sick in Fort Leavenworth and died. Although the battalion would choose a new captain after they left Camp Leavenworth, Captain Andrew Jackson Smith would catch up with the battalion and take control. Quick note, this was a breach of the agreement between the church and the military. The military had agreed that if anything happened to Captain Allen, the battalion could choose its own new leader. They didn't choose Captain Smith and immediately didn't like him, as Captain Smith didn't enjoy leading a religious battalion. However, as they marched on to Santa Fe, the battalion lucked out. They were following a battalion of Missouri regulars, some of whom were part of the mobs that drove the Mormons from Nauvoo. As the battalions were traveling through Comanche territory in Santa Fe, the Missouri battalions recorded a few instances of Indian attacks, where men were killed and some were even scalped. The Mormon battalion, however, was untouched. As the battalion was marching, they received word on September 10th that the Americans had taken Santa Fe. The Mormon battalion was to continue with all haste to strengthen the army there. Here, on the Texas border, Captain Smith knew they needed to move faster, so he ordered 15 men, with accompanying women and children, to leave the battalion and make their way to Colorado. In Colorado, those Mormons would set up a camp in Pueblo to await the main pioneering body of the church, while the rest of the battalion proceeded with all speed to Santa Fe. Over the next three weeks of September of 1846, the Mormon battalion would make a grueling march across the desert of Texas. They would record that they ran out of water and marched for long stretches, drinking only from pools of water that they came upon, which was often polluted with animal urine and dung. A large number of the men and animals would become sick during this stretch, as they would report only having two days of the march with fresh water. On October 2nd, during their march, 
Captain Smith received a letter from Commander Kearney of the military in Santa Fe saying that if they didn't make it to Santa Fe by October 10th, they'd be dishonorably discharged from the military. So the men doubled their pace. However, good news finally arrived. When they did reach Santa Fe on October 9th, they learned that Kearney had already left for California. The good news to the Mormons was that Alexander Donovan had taken charge in Santa Fe. Donovan had been in Missouri in 1838 during the Missouri-Mormon War. He was a friend of the church and cared for the Mormons. So when he heard the Mormons had the loyalty to leave their families on the plains and come to the aid of the government, he was moved. Donovan organized his troops on top of the rooftops of the buildings in Santa Fe, and as the Mormon battalion entered the city, he promptly gave them a 100-gun salute. Donovan would also replace Captain Smith with a captain more to the Mormon's liking. Those sick from the contaminated water and the long march through Texas were sent to Pueblo, Colorado to join the others there. On October 19th, 397 Mormon battalion members began the march to Southern California to aid in the war efforts there. Now, when General Kearney left for Southern California, he found the trails too difficult to handle with wagons and left them behind. So not only was the Mormon battalion to join them in Southern California, but they were to carve out a trail for wagons to journey back and forth from Southern California to Texas. This would become a grueling march through unexplored Mexican territories. The Mormons would work hard and carry out the task. On November 10th, about 250 miles from Santa Fe, another 50 men would become too sick to travel, and they'd also be sent off to Pueblo, Colorado to join the others. Now there was just 360 or so battalion members left, and they marched on. They'd record observing in southern New Mexico long, intricate irrigation systems. This was a blessing for the future of the Mormon church, as this knowledge of irrigation would become a life-saving skill when they settled in the deserts of Utah. So they plugged on through the deserts of southern New Mexico and what would become Arizona. The Mormon battalion would encounter a number of Mexican pueblos, but none of them were hostile. Most were willing to trade for small goods and recommended directions in their route to Southern California. On December 11th of 1846, the battalion would have its one rifle encounter of the march, which has come to be known, mostly comically, as the Battle of the Bulls. As they were marching along the San Pedro River, a large herd of cows and bulls came in contact with the battalion. In the herd were more than a few large violent bulls that charged the battalion. As the bulls were so aggressive, the men opened fire. The final numbers vary, but somewhere between 20 to 40 bulls were killed. So concluded the successful encounter of the Battle of the Bulls. Exciting stuff. So the battalion was now on the outskirts of what is to become Tucson, Arizona. A Mexican army occupied town, and the Mormons were determined to take it. As the battalion prepared for battle, threats and posturing began to take place between the two armies. When the battalion rushed the town on December 16th, they found the Mexican forces had retreated and run away. They took the city without firing a single bullet, and all of them remembered Brigham Young's promise. So after refreshing their supplies, the battalion moved on, making a tough two-month trek into Southern California territory. It's here in the early weeks of the January 1847 that the Mormon battalion learned that Mormon pioneers had landed in San Francisco and were settling lands up north. That must have been a heartwarming thing to hear. But more importantly, the battalion had completed their assignment to open a wagon road from Santa Fe. 
The significance of this accomplishment cannot be overestimated. They pioneered a new route through previously unexplored deserts between the mountainous Apache strongholds on the north and the Mexican frontier settlements on the south. This route would become a key link in a proposal for the Southern Transcontinental Railroad. This, in turn, would make the 1853 Gadsden Purchase necessary, bringing what is now Southern Arizona and New Mexico into the United States. Good work, Mormon Battalion. As the men marched towards San Diego, they finally laid their eyes on the Pacific Ocean. Daniel Tyler would record in his journal, quote, The joy, the cheer that filled our souls, none but worn-out pilgrims nearing a haven of rest can imagine. Prior to leaving Nauvoo, we had talked about and sung about the great Pacific Sea, and now we were on its very borders, and its beauty far exceeded our most sanguine expectations. The next thought was, where, oh where, were our fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters, wives, and children, end quote. On January 29th of 1847, the Mormon Battalion finished its march to Southern California. Now, interesting note here. Both the Mormon Battalion and the ship Brooklyn traveled more or less six months to arrive in California. Both lost a similar amount of people, and the Mormon Church now had Mormons settled in Northern and Southern California. Colonel Cook, who took over command of the battalion in Santa Fe, would write a letter of commendation to the battalion. He was extremely proud of their work, noting their almost 2,000-mile march. He'd say, history may be searched in vain for an equal march of infantry. For the next five months, the men would drill and oversee operations in Southern California before being transferred to Los Angeles, where they'd build Fort Moore before they could be discharged. Fort Moore was dedicated on July 4, 1847, almost one year to the date of their enlistment. The Mormon battalion, proud of their work that they had accomplished in Southern California, would take the flag of the battalion, and right in the middle of it would paint a grizzly bear, just like the one contained on the flag of California. And when a flag was to be raised during the dedicatory ceremony, rumor has it that it was the flag of the Mormon battalion, the stars, stripes, eagle, and bear that flew above the fort. And thus concluded the one-year service of the Mormon battalion. Now, what happened to the men from here? After completing their one year of service and being dismissed, the men went their separate ways. About 80 of them would re-enlist for another six months. Many of the men headed up north through California. They would settle for a time in the Sacramento region, and as we discussed in the last episode, find temporary work at Sutter's Mill. One of the battalion men, Henry Bigler, would record in his journal on January 24th of 1848 that they, quote, found a new mineral that looks like gold, end quote. This event was the first major gold claim and kicked off the California gold rush the next year. From this gold rush, over $17,000 in gold would be contributed to the economy in Utah by the men of the battalion. The rest of the men marched directly back to Council Bluffs, Iowa, or Winter Quarters, Nebraska, including young William Hendricks, now 17. William served faithfully for exactly one year, made every march, and participated faithfully with the men. When he was released from duty, he immediately marched back to his mother. Now, what happened to the flag of the Mormon battalion? When the men reconnected with Brigham Young in Utah, they would give him the flag. Brigham, when he arrives in Utah, I know, spoiler alert, will reform the Nauvoo Legion. He'll assign out his own personal protectors and give them the flag. 
These men will be known as the Minutemen of Utah, and the flag will go up to represent their work. As the men needed to be ready to serve at a moment's notice, they would paint two phrases on the flag. It would contain lifeguards above the bear and always ready below it. Okay, where can you see the flag today? After the Nauvoo Legion of Utah gets disbanded, the flag will fall into the hands of John Smith, the oldest son of Hiram Smith. The flag will remain within the Smith family and be passed down. It will eventually belong to Eldon Smith, the great-grandson of John Smith, who would serve as Emeritus Patriarch of the Church and keep that flag folded in his office at church headquarters until he passed away in 2013. It still remains in his family, but you can see pictures of it online. Now, lastly, what impact did the Mormon battalion have on the church and the people of that day? Not only did the battalion serve as the temporal saviors of the church, as Brigham Young said, due to the donated funds for the purchase of food and supplies, they did something more important. They demonstrated loyalty to the United States and faithful commitment to Brigham Young and the leadership. On a more temporal note, the march of the battalion helped support the cession of much of the American Southwest from Mexico, especially the Gadsden Purchase of 1853 of Southern Arizona and New Mexico. Their march opened a new wagon route to Southern California. Veterans of the battalion played significant roles in America's westward expansion in California, Utah, Arizona, and other parts of the West. Their 2,000-mile march was the longest recorded land march in North America by U.S. troops. And lastly, the flag of the Mormon battalion is now the oldest known flag from Southern California to contain the painting of the California bear. To this day, monuments for the battalion have been dedicated to their historic march and can be found littered across the American Southwest. They are in Iowa, Texas, Arizona, New Mexico, and Southern California. There are almost 25 monuments in all. So, that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this long episode of History of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and 50 Objects, Episode 37, Flag of the Mormon Battalion. As always, if you have questions or comments, you can reach out to me directly at joehomc at gmail.com. And as always, if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave me a comment on iTunes and help spread the word. Thanks again for listening. 